0: What's up, guys? It's Bradley with the Insurance Guys podcast. Hey, look, recently I actually got two more days out of my month. If you know me and you know how tight my schedule is, me getting two more days is huge, and I'm going to tell you how I did that. I did that with CoverDesk. Guys, this is not a testimonial, even though they are a sponsor. It's not a testimonial. It's not a made-up story. This is a real-life story. Me as a new agency owner, obviously, my business organization chart... I fill 80% of the seats, right? Well, one of the things that I do because I wanted to make sure that my people get paid right is I reconcile all my commission statements for all my carriers. And literally, guys, when it comes around payroll time, it takes two whole days for me to reconcile for the agency and reconcile for my agents. And I recently trained my CoverDesk virtual assistant on how to reconcile the agency commissions for my management system, which I'll say is not a popular management system. It's a newer management system. And I was able to train her how to do that. Literally, guys and gals, it bought me two extra days in the month. I could get two more days of production, get two more days with my family. Think about what you could get from two days. That's what this service from CoverDesk has provided me. Give CoverDesk a call or head over to www.coverdesk.com. Thanks
1: insurance agents from around the world welcome to the insurance guys podcast my name is scott howell your fearless host and leader insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for i protect insurance and financial services based out of huntsville alabama and before we get started on today's episode please help me welcome he is a six foot three sophomore from sarah land alabama parade first team all-american rivals five-star recruit he is a fantastic insurance agent and a great american ladies and gentlemen please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you,
0: Bradley? I was having a good day. I uh, went and I just had lunch at the Thai place across the mm. street. And uh, now my none of my gear is working. So this episode is brought to you by my new Apple AirPods that I'm having to use as my microphone.
1: Hey, you got to do it any way you can. Bradley, I'm an NFL football player today. Got up this morning, felt horrible, had an infection in my foot that I think might very well be what do you call that when you, you get, like, lockjaw and stuff, like t- uh, tetanus? gout? No, 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 tetanus. I cut my foot in the water uh, in the ocean down at Key West, and all of a sudden my foot blows up. But let me tell you what I did.
0: Oh, yeah, you're you're going to die.
1: I know, right? So what I did is I got up this morning because doing this podcast is not an option. I had to do it, which is a lot like an NFL football player. You don't have an option. you got to play. So in the NFL – After every game, if you play for the Steelers or maybe the Chargers or the Indianapolis Colts, everybody goes to the training room once they get their pads off and they take a shot of something called Toradol. That's just standard operating procedure after every game. What is Toradol? Toradol is a souped-up Motrin that is not habit-forming. So the entire NFL runs off Toradol. So – I get up. I couldn't walk this morning. I hobbled in my truck, drove to the doctor's office. He popped me with Toradol. He popped me with a steroid shot, popped me with B12. And here I am, ready to play against the San Diego Chargers today on this podcast. Guys, for the 200- Who's the San Diego Chargers, me or Chris? Either one. Either one. Hey, guys, listen to me. And I don't like to brag very often, but Bradley- I'm going to go ahead and brag on you and I for just a moment. Since January the 1st, year of our Lord 2021, we have been throwing smoke every week on these podcasts. I'm just telling you how it is. We have been throwing smoke. And I told CJ Huntson Pillar two weeks ago, I said, dude, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. Guys, our guest on this podcast today is going to blow your mind If you're an associate agent, take your principal agent, call him in, let him hear this podcast, because what we have done today is we have brought the best of the best of the best on this podcast for all 250,000 independent insurance agents to listen to today. So without further ado, please allow me to give him the introduction that he has always deserved. He was born and raised in New Mexico, He currently resides in Pueblo, Colorado. He is a graduate of the University of Colorado and holds a master's degree from the University of Denver. He is the president and owner of Brand and Associates, LLC, a management consulting firm specializing in the property casualty insurance industry. He is recognized as the leading consultant for agency valuations, producer compensation plans and e Carrier Approved Procedure Reviews. He also provides the acclaimed Carrier Relationship Management Service. He began his career in 1987 as a company underwriter and marketing representative. And since establishing Brandon & Associates, he has been a featured speaker across the continent for more than 400 seminars and educational programs. His articles have been published more than 400 times, and he writes a monthly column for the Insurance Journal. He has published a book on EO tips. He has co authored a book on agency perpetuation and has been a monthly agency management consultant for more than 20 years on various publications. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor today to introduce to you the reigning WBA, WBO, WBC, and IBF heavyweight champion of the world on agency valuation, producer compensation, and succession planning, please put your hands together and welcome Mr. Chris Barron. How are you doing, Chris?
2: Scott, I'm doing well. I've never had an introduction quite like that in all the 400 presentations I've given. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Chris, let's not be humble. I have talked to people like Chris Paradiso. I have talked to people who have run multi-billion dollar insurance agencies. And to a man they will say, Chris is the best. The end, the end. So what we have done today, guys, is we have brought the man, not the man that wants to be the man, the man on this show to talk about agency perpetuation, employee compensation, how to set it up for you guys to give possibly ownership to employees in your agencies. Chris, I want to start with where you and I started and before I go any further, I want to go ahead and say this to all the 250,000 agents listening to this right now. I am about to enter into an, a, a consulting agreement with Chris. Chris, and I should ask you this before we go on the podcast, is it Baran or it's Buran? Is it Buran or Buran? Buran. Bur- Buran. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I'm saying that correctly. So, Chris, you and I are about to enter into a consulting agreement As we talked about on the phone that day and you shed a lot of light with me on what we can and can't do and what we don't need to do. Let's start there. So as a expert in the field of agency valuations, talk to our 250,000 insurance agents that are listening to this right now about kind of the core principles of how you value, or do a valuation on an agency?
2: Well, sure, so the core principles, you hear a lot of people always talking about EBITDA, 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 or some people call it EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. That's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, and that's an important measure. But at the end of the day, people buying agencies, the people that buy agencies day in and day out, they're actually using a cash flow set of metrics. And they're measuring it based on how much profit are you likely to generate in the future, what growth rate, and how risky is it going to be. It's not just a simple like a building where it's a multiple of these buildings are going for $25 a square foot. So everybody's at $25 a square foot plus or minus. The agency that's growing faster than an agency going backwards, like one I was working on today, it's going to be worth more. An agency that has a better profit margin is going to be worth more. One of the things that's coming into 2021 right now that I'm doing a presentation on next week is there's a lot of fear that um, E&O exposures and claims are going to occur considerably in 2021. If you're an agency that has some serious E&O exposures, your value is probably going down by the end of this year Mm. versus one that's got it all together. Another important point that's, you know, we talked about that I think is real important is for people to understand that it matters who the buyer is. If your private equity has their own model as to how to value by an agency, they can bring some things to the table that may or may not enable them to pay more. But if you're part of a family, and I really have to emphasize this, Scott, if you're part of a family, the IRS dictates the valuation rules. When there's a generational transfer, the ruling goes back all the way to 1959. The basics of the foundation of that ruling have not changed. Most people do not know that ruling exists, and they have to comply. For all the listeners, if you're part of a family and you're getting advice on how to do perpetuation within the family, make sure you're working with someone that understands Revenue Ruling 5960 because by law you must comply.
1: So, let me ask you a couple of things that just kind of shook me a little bit when you and I started talking for an hour that day on the phone. The first thing you said to me was there was some <laughs> there was some questions that you asked and you were like a attorney at a, in a trial. It was almost like you already knew the answer to the question and whatever I said and there were a couple times you, ever, you even said, well, thank God you're not doing that. Mm-hmm. The first one that you said was, we were talking about Clint Knorr in my agency and him coming on as an owner in iProtect Insurance here this year. And you said, does Clint own any of his book of business? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, he doesn't. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm the 100% shareholder and, and, and I have not sold him any part. And you said, oh, my God, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about that.
2: Historically, good producers could own some portion of their book, right? We called it vesting plans and things like that. There's a laundry list of problems with those models in today's world. One is just on a very basic level – Let's say that you own a book 50-50 with a producer and you guys don't get along and you aren't split up. Which 50% goes with the producer? Right. Right? The good part. Well, which right. is the good part?
1: <laughs> hey, my, my friend and great American Jason Cass, I believe, tells this story, how he, he owned his book. It was 50-50 with his principal agent. And he decides to leave and they give him – the 50% of the book that's like four hours away from where he lives. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've seen that happen. It's, which, it's, which, which you, know, who, you know who wins in those cases, right? The attorneys. They're the only the ones that win. They, yeah, they get their new boat. Right, right.
2: Yeah. It's, it's just not a good system for anybody, really. And, but then the next part is the legal problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This all came out of way back when Enron imploded. Congress decided to pass a law to prevent and protect retirees forevermore from a situation like that. But they didn't craft it in a way that was just big business. It applies to every business in America. And in that sense, the way that they passed the law and wrote the law, it's it's all under the auspices of what's called the 409A law. What that says is is that if you do not set these plans up exactly right – and it, they're hard set up exactly right. Then the moment the producer gets ownership of their book or some portion of their book or their deferred compensation is another model that they owe taxes on that portion of the book immediately. So let's say they get $250,000 of value. They owe taxes on $250,000 of income at that moment. Mm. And if they don't pay it and the IRS comes knocking five years from now, then it's the taxes, back taxes, penalties. And the agency owner has their own set of taxes and penalties as well. And by the way, it's cash due at that moment, even though $1 has not yet been paid. Right. So we have to set these up correctly if you're going to do them at all. Um, the penalties are so onerous. It's not worth doing in most cases if ever, otherwise.
1: One thing that you said to me that really resonated with me, and remember, all I do is channel through me on each one of these episodes all the questions and all the things that I think that all the 250,000 agents watching this and listening to this want to hear. One thing you said to me that day was you said, Scott, I'm going to tell you something. However we set this up, which we kind of both decided was almost like a – version of an employee-sponsored ownership program for me. That, that's my agency. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute in terms of different ways to set things up. But you said to me, once we set this up, the possibility of changing this or doing something different down the road is almost impossible. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. When you, once you set one of these up, you're pretty close to fixed in
2: place. If right. you go to amend it, it's in many ways like starting entirely over. Mm. Very expensive to do in initially and uh, do it all over again. I mean, it just becomes prohibitive. So go into it. Anybody listening, if you're going to go down that road. Go into it, plan it, think it
1: through, get the right advice with the understanding that changing it is unlikely. Right. And agents, the everybody that's listening right now, I want you guys to understand what we're talking about right now because maybe we kind of skirted past the central theme of what we're talking about right now. We're talking about a perpetuation plan and an ownership plan potentially for team members and employees of your agency. We're talking about setting something up that would allow people within your agency to take part in ownership of that agency, or maybe it's just one person, or maybe it's a brother, sister, uncle, aunt, cousin, Let's talk a little bit about something else I asked you, and I found this to be very telling. I said, Chris, what's the most common way that an agency sets this up? And you said, Scott, I've done hundreds of these, if not thousands of these, and I've never seen two that were alike, because a lot of it is based off the current owner's appetite, if you will, for how much and what he wants to give and keep and how he wants to set that up and who he wants to have ownership to, I assume, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's at the end of the day, we're dealing with people. Right. And everybody's situation is different and goals and mindsets are all different. You know, one of the things I see a lot of agencies really making, especially agencies, their startup the mistake they make, is they're looking for boilerplate solutions. Right. There's not a boilerplate solution that's real in this space. It just doesn't exist. Not a good one. And especially if you're doing perpetuation where you're bringing people in partially through a deferred compensation plan or vesting or whatever like that, those really must by law pretty much be customized. So
0: yeah, no
1: two, I've never seen two the same. And guys, let me, let me go ahead and stop you right now. For those of you that think that Chris only deals with the Brown and Browns of the world, he sets up perpetuation planning, succession planning for, agencies that are hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue down to four or five employees. Am I correct there? And everywhere in between. Totally correct. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing, and I don't think I fully understood this, so I have a selfish reason for asking this, but I think it's good for all of these agents to hear this. In your consulting agreement that I have sitting on my desk right here that I'm about to get back to you in the next few days, we talked about and tell our audience kind of, first of all, what are all the things that you said you were going to need for me to kind of get this ball rolling downhill? And then second of all, the part I didn't really understand was it seemed like for you to do a valuation of our agency, uh, was kind of going to be a separate deal and and something we might need to do, but we might not need to do. Can you, can you, cause that was, that was kind of something I didn't really understand. Sure. So,
2: you know, to do a valuation of an agency, to get to the first part about the question is um, agency valuations are usually done on a with five years of financials and tax returns. And then give or take, depending on what's available, three years of operational data. And the reason for the difference is that most agencies can provide five years of financial data. Most agencies can't provide more than three years of operational data. So it's just a practical difference there, Uh just dealing with reality. One of the best things everybody out there could do for themselves on a go-forward basis is to always make sure you have quality financials. When you go to do evaluation, if you're selling your agency, whatever you're doing, quality financials will always help you. If we, God forbid, have another COVID type of thing, the economy shuts down, and the banks aren't lending money so easily, having high quality financials will put you at the front of the line to get a loan to see you through the difficult times, all else being equal.
1: So, now, now let me stop you there. When you say high quality financials, are we talking about tax returns done by a certified accountant and from a monthly and annual? P&L and those things looking like they were done more by a professional than on a cocktail napkin, that kind of thing? Yeah, the cocktail napkin is
2: not very good. I've done a few of those. But it's not so much that they're prepared by a professional because we – I had one this morning. It was done by a CPA, and it was horrible. Well, I'm talking about having them done by a high-quality CPA, not necessarily a audit statements or accountant statements, but just quality details with everything – put into the right place and having enough of a breakout. Independent insurance agency accounting is really unique, requires a unique set of skills that your CPA absolutely must understand those requirements in order to help you build your balance sheets in particular correctly. And that becomes a problem if they're not.
1: Hey, that was the other thing on that one hour call that shook me. Is towards the end of that call, we got into this discussion And I would love for you to tell our audience what we were talking about relative to you saying something along the lines of, and I don't want to blanket all CPAs because there's some fantastic CPAs out there. But I thought the overriding message of that conversation was Scott, you would be shocked at how many CPAs do not understand the complexity of an independent insurance agent. And I'm just talking about yearly taxes here because you've got that cost basis. Go go ahead and talk about that. I I want these guys to hear this. Yeah, so
2: this is important, whether when you're doing perpetuation, whether you're doing any kind of valuation, you're getting, it's just crucial. Independent insurance agency accounting is really unique because you will always have 100% of the time a combination of cash accounting and accrual accounting. And your CPA must understand that you have to have both. The reason you must have both for every independent insurance agent is that you are a fiduciary for your client's monies and your carrier's monies. And on a fiduciary basis, you are always on an accrual basis. That's why even though you're cash accounting, maybe, you can still have bad debt. Almost no other industry can you be cash accounting and have bad debt. It's an impossibility. Right. So that's a real important point. And if what happens in a lot of agencies is that the accountant doesn't understand this. And so at the end of the year, they'll go, drain your bank account. You pay taxes, make sure you withdraw all your money. You're a fiduciary. That's against the law to drain it below a certain number. And if your accountant doesn't understand what that number needs to be, they're giving you some of the most horrendous advice inadvertently that could ever be given. I used to do some work with an insurance carrier, and every time one of their big agents would go and solve it, they would call me and ask me to come in and help fix the problem. And it was kind of their fixer for a while, and so many times the CPA had said, just drain the bank account, and then they would need to put money back in. It would always have to be after-tax dollars, and that gets prohibitively expensive very quickly. Mm. You've got to have an accountant that understands this. I train accountants on independent insurance agency accounting because it's so unique that they're not going to get that education anywhere else. Right, It's a big deal. This is a really big deal for people.
1: Oh, yeah. You were giving me some examples of and even told me, hey, I'd love to speak to your accountant who is a pretty big firm in Birmingham, Alabama, to make sure he understands that difference between cash and accrual and make sure he's doing it correctly because it can get screwed up really easily if you're not careful. And you were giving me some some kind of horror stories of you getting on the phone with a CPA and finally they go, you're right, but I don't know what I'm going to do about this.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had a lot of those. Um, I've had a number of CPAs make such huge mistakes. They've said, can we just ignore
1: it? <laughs> And I think you said you're like, hey, look, man, I'm kind of out of this now. We'll talk later, never, hopefully. And yeah, you, exactly. Don't let them the make problem. their decision what they're going to do.
2: They've got to figure it out. And, and for everyone listening, it may not be a profit for you today, but every one of you probably will sell an agency at some point in time, or you'll borrow money, or you'll die. In any of those trigger points, your agency will be valued, and these issues will be a factor, guaranteed. Right. One of the mistakes I see in succession planning, especially with producers coming in, is that the balance sheets, these accounting issues are not addressed up front. A producer can come in then and like become a stockholder, but at too high of a price. And then evaluation will come in three or four or five years later for whatever reasons. And they will have seen that they paid way too much. And then that just kind of puts poison in the water of that partnership. Mm-hmm. But you want to, it, it's important for these situations to do it right from day one.
0: Speaking of that, shifting gears slightly, talk about the importance of clean data when it comes to making sure all your ducks are in the row as it, as it relates to an evaluation and potential sale of, a, of an agency. Clean
2: data is crucial. You know, we, well, we always do a bunch of valuations, but we had some last year where we ended up with basically three sets of returns, three sets of data from the same agency. And they were very different sets of numbers. Let's say that, you know, I'll make stuff up here, but let's say that one number said that there was a million dollars of revenue and one number said there was 1.3 million of revenue and another said there was $900,000 of revenue. So where do you even start the valuation? That's not terribly uncommon to see that those kinds of differences or you see differences in the profit margins that are pretty material or one of the biggest problems that we see all the know probably 75% of the time is that the agency owner will say our producers are paid 40-30. So that means usually that means that the weighted average is about 31.5% with normal retention and growth rates. But then when we look at what they're paid, they're actually usually paid around 37 or 38%. So then well are they really paid 40-30 or are they paid something else? Right. And so we ask the question and a buyer or a banker needs to understand what the true number is. They're not just going to say, well, you it's supposed to be 31.5, so I must, it must be 31.5.
0: What are some steps an agent can take to start ensuring that the data is, is clean and is put in in a systematic way? One of the best things that
2: you can do is to have an outside person review it if you're not big enough to have the internal controls. I once did a study of my clients as to which ones had the most success. It was really troubling to find any commonalities. But the one commonality was they had an annual review done by an outside third party every year of the quality of their data. And every one of them that had massively more success than everyone else that didn't. I'd really encourage it. Another thing to do that's really important, really important, really, really important. I'm not knocking anybody. This is a purely practical piece of advice. Regardless of which agency management system you purchase, there's a high probability there is a third party consulting firm that specializes in that management system. They usually have special licenses to be able to coach you and train you on how to use the system better than the trainers that come when you buy the system. But what's even as important, maybe more important, there are these accounting settings that all the systems have that get brushed over in the hurry and just the enormity when you start on an agency management system, those settings are really crucial to getting the correct data. And, being, and when you run a report, knowing that the data in the report's correct, because the report parameters need to be aligned with whatever settings you've chosen. And if they're not, your data is probably going to be wrong.
1: Right. That's yeah. a really
2: important point that gets skipped over all the time.
1: I don't know. I think the best advice I could give somebody or an agency that is switching management systems is beyond just the customer support that you get from that particular management system. Find the best consultant out there. And every management system, for the most part, is going to have a list of five to 10 people that they can give you to make sure. And yeah, it's going to cost a little bit of money, but my God, the amount of savings and ability to run reports correctly and cleanly after they get through going through it and kind of what I call fine-tuning it, it's everything. You know, It's
2: totally everything. And if you're
1: going to value
2: you're doing perpetuation, you're going to a bank and you have disparate information, the question that arises, which set of data is correct? Right. I've had clients who have had to take one to three years, delay their planning for one to three years. Just to clean up their data, right it's a big deal. It's expensive too, when you do it after the fact.
1: So we talked earlier, and I want to circle back to where I started asking you this question about you know we're doing an evaluation of Scott's agency, which we are about to do to determine what the appropriate price should be for Clinton or to come in as an agency owner, mm-hmm. and we talked about five years of tax returns. Check. Got that. Five years of operational data. Check. Quality financials. What are the other things that you're going to ask Scott for as we move forward with our agreement that you and I have in place? And I'm only asking that because I want to give these other people out there a flavor for if they hire you to do something similar, what they can expect.
2: It's pretty much um, basic stuff that we want to see. What your company results, your results with your top 10 carriers, top 15 carriers are. What's your concentration of business within those carriers. We want to see what the kind of relationship that you have there. And that's also important for determining what the probability is for your contingencies are on a go-forward basis to help figure out the value. We're going to want to see employee rosters. We want to see how many people you have employed, what you're actually paying them, what your turnover rates are. So we're going to require that. We're going to require information about your employment contracts. Do you have non-competes with your employees? Do you have non-piracy? What kind of agreements do you have? If you're already in a partnership, we're going to require a copy of your buy-sale agreement, whatever your partnership agreements are. We're going to need to see that. We're going to have a list of warranties for people to complete along the lines of, do you have any pending you know, claims? We're going to want to know things like that. Do you have any pending employment practice lawsuits or you have money that's owed to you? And along the ways of money being owed, we will ask for an aged accounts receivable report because we want to see if people, especially if you have agency billed business, are, are you collecting money in a timely manner? Do you have a lot of bad debt sitting on the books? Do you have credits on what happens? It doesn't have as much as it used to, but some agencies are still holding credits By law, in most states, you have to return all credits within 30 days. Mm. So if we see credits on the books for 90 days, 120 days, 180 days, every once in a while, we'll see someone holding credits for years. That's a red flag that there's something really missing in an agency. So those are some examples of the other information that we always request.
1: Chris, I'm not so sure, even if you're an agency owner and you're not trying to put a perpetuation plan together or bring in, a team member, you know, having you do all of the things that you just mentioned, it's kind of like hooking your car up to one of those things at the auto service and it tells you what's wrong with your agency. You're getting a kind of a health check, if you will, because if I pull all this data for you and you analyze it, you're going to come back to me and go, hey, man, where's your non-competes at? Or, (laughs) you know, I'm looking at your five-year operational data and there's some big holes here. Yeah, absolutely.
2: We have clients that ask us to do that every year for that reason, not for any other reason. It's a good idea for people to do it. It really is self-serving in a way, but it's just, it's really a good idea. I write my valuation reports in a, a little bit different manner than a lot of people. There's rules about how that anybody doing a correct business valuation has to comply with rules that would bore all of your listeners to tears. Right we have to stay within those parameters, but I do my very best to put in my reports, suggestions as to how the operations can be improved. And I go, I try to go right up to that line as much as I can without crossing it to help.
1: Yeah. I think I forgot to mention in your bio, you are, and I believe this was the last thing on your bio that you are a certified business appraiser. Yes. Among, there's some other things on here that I didn't even mention, but that's something that obviously you've been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, so I have another strange question for you. You know, you have situations where captive agents more, not necessarily state farm because they're a little different animal, Mm -hmm. but farmers and all state agents will be heavily involved in some cases in the sale of their book of business to someone else. Do you ever get a call to work with those types of agencies, or is it strictly independent agencies? It's
2: pretty strictly independent agencies these days. I've worked on a few of those. Okay. When those, some of those contracts got changed, I guess, about 10 years ago, if I remember correctly, there were some handcuffs put on out there that changed the way that those things needed to be done. Sometimes having a third – not always, but every, often having a third party in some of those deals, like me, come in – that can actually make a situation worse rather than better.
1: Yeah, muddies the water.
2: Uh huh. It can really muddy the water. So, yeah, I'm not saying that it's not a bad idea to have it done that way. Um, it's it muddies just,
1: the water because you're telling them the right way to do it. Nobody on that side of the table wants to do it the right way.
2: <laughs> that definitely <laughs> happens. Um,
1: it, that oh, no. The, oh, no. We're not doing that. No, 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 no. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that happens. Without question, that happens. And sometimes it's just not worth br- bringing it up that way.
1: Right. Like, I understand. It. It really
2: isn't.
1: But it's, that's it's, that. hey, it's like my yeah. friend Karen Simmons, the accountant down at Mobile, told me one time I was talking to her about one of her clients and 1099s, and she said, you know, Scott, sometimes it's better just to let puppies sleep. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it is. It, it really is. Let me talk about that real quickly for your people, your, all your listeners. 1099 producer contracts. Especially with what looks like it's coming out with uh, some of the courts and the new administration, try to always avoid having any producers that are 1099s. Folks,
1: how long has Scott been saying that on the podcast? <laughs> y'all don't never listen to nothing I say, but I've been telling y'all do not go the route of freaking 1099 in producers, or you are going to get your ass in a bunch of damn trouble before it's over. You will. You will. There's. It is next to impossible
2: to have a producer that's a a true 1099. And the other thing to understand is your contracts for producers need to distinguish in today's world between what's called an inside producer and an outside producer. This will affect the value perpetuation and everything else. You know, an inside producer actually gets owed overtime. Mm. And there's some tests for whether they qualify inside or outside, even at the employee level.
1: What are some of those tests that kind of that litmus test as to whether they're inside or outside? So, COVID has
2: changed some things around, and we don't know what, we don't know how COVID's going to affect it, but there's literally a test that says how many hours a week are they in the office? Okay. So, if you've got a producer that never leaves the office. Now, probably- now,
1: now, let me stop you right there. Is this for a W 2 or a 1099 or both? It could be for either. Okay.
2: Yeah. But, that's an inside producer unless you can jump through a whole bunch of hoops to show. Otherwise inside producers, that's tough, man. That is our tough situation to be in. And then another, so you owe overtime. Arguably, if you don't hit the right metrics, you might owe overtime to a commission person, which calculating that's like ludicrous. Right. And then the next aspect of it, if they're to, to help protect yourself on that, Make sure your contracts pay on an earned basis, not a written basis. So we look at that sort sort of thing when we look at producer contracts. A written basis is that you pay your producer whenever you write the policy, not when you actually collect the commission. Correct. Right? So if you collect the commission 112, 112, 112, the producer should be paid 112, 112, 112,
1: 112. Mm. And that's one of the
2: litmus tests.
1: Say that one more time. I want my listeners to hear that.
2: So it's one of the litmus tests for inside-outside is that you pay your producers on an earned basis. And earned, in this case, isn't necessarily earned premium. It's when you're paid. So if you get your commissions, whether it's even direct bill, and it's 112, 112, 112, you pay your producers 112, 112, 112. You pay when you're paid. That will also improve your cash flows if you do it that way. Right. They'll also help minimize bad debt. A lot of good things will come out of it, but it's more of the litmus tests for inside-outside producers.
1: So employee compensation plans, and really that's kind of what we're kind of getting into right now, actually. What other advice can you give to independent agents relative to, I think when they think about employee compensation plans, what they want Chris to tell them is how they should structure their compensation plans for their producers and even the account managers as well. Do you have any other advice for them on that?
2: Producers, once they're you know three, four years into the thing, should be a hundred percent commission every time. Okay. Period. If they can't cut it, then they probably should go somewhere else, but it should be commission only. You could structure some bonus plans. You can structure deferred comp like we started out talking about if it's done right, but it should be commission. And, What you pay people on new is kind of neither here nor there. Whatever you want to pay them on new is fine because they'll never make enough on new for it to move the needle that much on your income statements. What you pay them on renewals, what's really critical, those numbers are coming down. It used to be like 40 renewal, some places 50, and it's coming down and coming down to closer and closer to between 25 and 30 on renewals now on a national level. And then uh, staff, always measure your account managers relative to how, how big a book that they have. So you got to pay them X to make sure you get anybody to apply for the job. Right. But it should be commensurate with what commissions they're servicing at some level. So it varies for personal lines. It varies for commercial lines. It depends on whether it's small commercial or large commercial. Those are the two ways to look at it there.
1: Do you, on account managers, say you pay them a salary, annual salary but in addition to that based on the size of their book and maybe some contingencies there they might bonus out at certain times during the year something like that
2: yeah you definitely do bonuses be really wary I'm really wary of doing bonuses based on the size of the book Uh because if you have multiple producers and one of the producers is a laggard that account manager is going to resent the fact that Everyone else gets a bonus, and they don't, and it's not their fault. Right. So as long as you can equalize for that, it's okay.
1: Would you do bonuses plus the salary, or would you prefer just to pay an account manager that's handling a larger book of business and maybe more of an intricate book of business if it's a specific niche that's pretty specialized and you know they've got to really be confident to be able to handle that, just pay them more? Just pay them more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You'll get higher quality applicants, right? You'll have lower turnover. Yeah. That makes sense. So I guess my last question of the day, because I know we're running up on time here and and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on here. Guys, I hope y'all gotten something out of this. I mean, there's so much here to talk about. I could have you on here four times for four hours and probably not cover all of it. So to end our conversation today, Speaking to all the agencies out there, and i 'm going to give you an example, so I knew somebody a friend of mine that lived up in North Carolina and they had their insurance with an independent agent in a small town in North Carolina. It was just him and a lady in his office, but it was about a million and a half two million dollars worth premium, and he drops dead of a heart attack on a random Saturday at four o'clock. He had no perpetuation plan he had nobody in his family to set up to take over that agency and within about a month or less the carriers that he had represented because there was no plan in place and now you've got clients that are calling the carrier going hey my insurance is over here with him his doors are locked I can't make my payment they start pulling that business out of the agency and then literally over a one month time period it just all vanishes it's gone. What do people listening to this do to keep from something like that happening? Because stuff like that does happen. Yeah, I
2: I get that call once or twice a year. Um, So what everybody should do in a situation like that, by and large, is have what's called a contingent buy-sell agreement. And a contingent buy-sell agreement is an agreement between you and a friendly agency, a friend that has an agency, where they agree that if you drop dead like that, that they will at least manage your agency for a time period until it can be sold or they agree to buy it. However it's best designed. And man, I've got that situation going on right now. Exactly. Almost exactly what you described. We had talked to the owner. He knew he was dying. We talked to him beforehand. He refused to do it. He died. There's no one else licensed in the agency. So you got to lock the doors at that stage. Right. No marriage, no, nothing. And, it's a disaster for all involved. Get a contingency buy-sell. If you need help, let me know. But it's a different kind of buy-sell agreement. It needs to be crafted quite differently. Best protection you could ever get for your family, for your clients, for your carriers, for your friends.
1: Hey, let me tell you what I've got right now before you and I start on our journey together here very shortly. So My sister's a corporate litigator. She's one of the America's best attorneys. She's my only sister. I trust her with my life. I trust her probably as much as I trust anybody in the world. And I have given her some instructions and I've put her on some accounts on my operating account. And she has a list of people that upon my death, if I die this afternoon going home from work, she is to temporarily take over the management of the agency And your number and your name and your email address, meaning you, Chris, is like second person she calls. To try to work through the ins and outs of how we're going to handle continuing to run this agency, who's, and I've I've even given her instructions on who gets what and that type of thing. Is that okay? Or should I have something more, you know, girthy in place to handle that? Contingency by sale is actually better. What you have, though, is very good. And
2: if you don't have a contingency buy-sell, everybody should have something along the lines of what you described. I have some clients that are, like you said, even really huge clients, you know, with hundreds of employees. They've decided not to do contingency buy-sell. They've created the same kind of list that you have. And, you know, if I drop dead, call Chris. One way or another, the worst situation in the world is the one that you described. I've done it so many times I cannot begin to explain the pain that's caused um, when people don't have the list or the contingency by self.
1: Right. Right. It's horrible. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. I look forward to working with you very soon and, and uh, as early as next week, actually. And I hope that the agents that are listening to this right now, if it's not, you have somebody that's in the industry that can help them with, succession planning, perpetuation planning, you know, if they have an interest in at some point in time bringing employees or team members in as agency owners, not just, quite frankly, we kind of knocked it in the head about the book ownership, right? I mean, we've kind of, we kind of disavowed that right now. That's kind of out. So uh, take this and go, I apologize. I No, thank you for being on the show. Guys, listen. You are listening. Go ahead and get that, Chris. You are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. And like I say every week, rewards come from action, not discussion. Quit damn shuffling paperwork on your desk. Stop looking at scorecard bonuses for two hours a day. Quit buying Bitcoin and watching GameStop. Go out there build relationships. Go out there and build relationships in your community. Go out there and sell insurance. Put these processes in place. Don't really care what part of this you do or you don't do, but you need to have something in place in case something does happen. And I do truly believe in my heart that if you do put some type of ownership program in place, David Carruthers and I talk about this all the time. It motivates people, even if it's only a few shares in your agency. It motivates them. It's great for new hires when you start talking about, hey, you know, you're going to have a chance one day to have ownership in this place. That really motivates a lot of people, and I think it'll bring even better talent to your agency if you're willing to let some of the toys that you have go and not just keep them all in the corner of the room and tell everybody they can't play with them. I hope that you'll at least consider that and go out today and help your family earn money, make money for your wife, for your kids, college fund, your parents that are struggling, your husband out there that just lost his job, go out there and make money for them. Figure out what your why is And go out there and crush it in the insurance industry. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, you are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we are throwing smoke every week. Come back and see us next week. We love you. We appreciate you. And we look forward to throwing the 98-mile-an-hour fastball next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys Podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at the or email me at iProtectins at gmail.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to BradleyflowersInsurance.com or email him at Bradley at SaraLand Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being with you again real soon on the next episode of The Insurance Guys. Take care.